Fight fans, welcome back. This is another week of the MMA Cutmen. I'm your host, Kevin Mendelson. Across from me, as always, my co-host, Marcus Schmidley from MMAinterviews.tv. Marcus, a beautiful day here in Seattle. Sun shining, birds chirping. Perfect day to get up at 9 in the morning and watch some fighting. Yeah, it was a nice change of pace being able to get up, as you mentioned, at 9 in the morning for some Facebook prelims of UFC action in Sweden. Uh, that card turned out to have a lot of violence to it main card action was sensational and a lot of good topics to get to on today's show. We've got the UFC on Fuel recap. We have a Bellator 65 recap. We're going to preview next weekend's big fight weekend with Bellator and the UFC going again. It's a good three week stretch for these guys going on uh, with, with some really good cards coming at you. We'll also have some headlines, what you may have missed in the week in MMA coming up. As always, first things first. This morning, 9.30 a.m., start time for the prelims of the UFC on Fuel card. They were on Facebook. Some great fights, as Marcus mentioned. With the main card, that's where you really got into the good stuff. Brad Pickett started the night off with Demacio Page, and that's a heck of a fight on paper between those two guys. Yeah, it, was, uh, it eventually ended up being fight of the night, so Brad Pickett and Demacio Page are going to get $50,000 bonuses. Uh, interesting fight. I thought Brad Pickett looked like he was the better fighter for the majority of the contest, but Demacio Page is not the kind of guy to go quietly into the night. He, he stands there and trades with anybody. He, he's been on the bad side of some losses uh, in, in his UFC and WEC career. But he, he was game today against Brad Pickett. I thought Brad Pickett looked sensational. Some of the best boxing in the UFC. And, and, and he just doesn't get noticed because he's not a bigger guy. I think if he was a middleweight or a light heavyweight, people would really be slurping his boxing skills. Tiny guys don't get all the love all the time. Brad Pickett, though, victorious with the rear naked choke, four minutes and five seconds into round number two. Brad Pickett has to be careful to not have his head too far forward. He has to stay with his hips, lined up on Demacio Page's hips, and here he's trying to get the rear naked choke. Pickett looking to lock it in. He's got it. I'm making a side real quick before we go into the rest of the card. Isn't it nice to have Mike Goldberg back? I enjoy uh, I enjoy Mike Goldberg. I, I thought it was uh, a unique pairing with Kenny Florian today. I wasn't really expecting that. I was expecting either Joe Rogan to pop up somewhere or John Anik to sprout out of Mike Goldberg's head. But <laughs> neither one of those situations happened. And I was actually very uh, very excited for for Kenny Florian's knowledge and his wisdom and and, and his his fight acumen. You know, paired with Mike Goldberg's Goldbergisms and, and all the stuff that we get with that, I thought it was a very nice pairing. At some point, Florian actually called him Goldie, and the entire show was made for me. I was so happy about that. Uh, up next, after Brad Pickett beat Demacio Page, John McGuire and Demarcus Johnson, second round submission. This seemed to be the theme as we were going into the early parts of the show. Trying to get the leverage from half guard. He lost it, though. And now McGuire steps over. And that's the And he just absolutely took his arm and made it his. It was one of the best transitions uh, I've seen lately in mixed martial arts. Demarcus Johnson is a guy who has very good submission skills. He was a finalist on The Ultimate Fighter Season 9. A guy that I think 
it's it's interesting if you you know if you look at USC.com, they had Demarcus Johnson listed at eighteen and nine. If you look online, he's listed at fifteen and ten. A little bit of discrepancy between those two <laughs> records, and I don't really know which one is which. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a transition that was interesting because Johnson was looking to lock up a Kimura. It looked like he had it. John McGuire just transitions beautifully into an armbar, and Demarcus Johnson. You know, coming towards the end of his UFC fight career, if he can't put away guys like John McGuire, John McGuire though, eighteen and three in his mixed martial arts career, advances to two and zero in the UFC. So bigger things to come on the horizon for him. After that, we had Dennis Seaver and Diego Nunes. Dennis Seaver, the the spinning back kick master. Why can nobody, as you mentioned it earlier, uh, nobody can really seem to get a good fight out of Diego Nunes? Why? Why is that? Well, I don't know. I mean, he's he's a very technical fighter. He's got range to him. He, he knows how to use his kicks well. He, he throws crisp technical strikes. Uh, I, I mentioned on Facebook earlier today as the fights were going down, it, it's just impossible to look like a world-class fighter against him. He doesn't win a lot of these fights that he's been in recently. He dropped to a fight to D, uh, Kenny Florian excuse me, uh, earlier in the year, maybe in 2011. You know, Dennis is another lightweight convert to featherweight, just like Kenny Florian. And, and this is the second fight in a row that Diego Nunes drops to a guy that's probably naturally bigger than him. But Dennis Seaver didn't really look like he had a huge advantage at, at any point in the fight. I mean, he does take a 29-28 decision. Um, a very interesting fight. It, it's hard to look good when you're fighting Diego Nunes, but nevertheless, Dennis Seaver's, you know, Quality kickboxer, Russian-born German. I, I think a lot of fight fans in Sweden got their money's worth. And after that, we saw Cr Bahad. Oh, Cr Baharzada. Thank you. I'm, I practiced this before the show. I had it right, and in the time that it took me to turn everything on and get this show started, I officially became unable to get his name out. It's it's tough to say. Uh, but it's going to become fun to say in the future because I think this is a guy that a lot of people need to be paying attention to. I didn't think he was going to beat Paulo Tiago. I, I must admit, I thought Paulo Tiago's pedigree inside the UFC, you know, yeah, he was 4-3 and three before this fight, but he knocked out Josh Koscheck. He's fought some really game fighters, and this is Ciara Badrazada's first fight in the UFC. I didn't expect the level of success that we saw. 42-second knockout, and, and I think you'll agree with this, one of the most vicious-looking flattenings of a guy we've seen in recent memory. Both of these guys trying to get their range going, trying to... He was out. Bahadur Zada, as Mike Goldberg said, just absolutely flatlines Paulo Tiago. And in, when you first looked at it, it didn't look like he really hit him with anything hard. But then they showed the replays, and as Paulo Tiago was going to the ground, he got whacked pretty solidly in the in the side of his head. Uh, I made a comment earlier today. I, it, either Paulo Tiago's chin's made of macaroni, or C.R. Badrazada's got some legit power for a welterweight, and I think it could be a combination of both. I didn't see that punch land crisp and flush. Nevertheless, all it takes is 42 seconds. Newcomer in the UFC. That's a huge win for a guy who comes into the UFC and makes a debut at 21 and four. You've got to think that puts him close to being in the mix, as Dana likes to say, because Paulo Tiago is a guy who, you know, honestly was right outside that mix, if not in it, uh, a couple months ago, maybe a year ago. 
Interesting win for Badrzada. It trains with Jason Mayhem Miller, as I've mentioned on the show. It's interesting that Mayhem Miller doesn't have more evolved striking. Having seen what this guy brings to the table, I'm excited to see what you know what he can put together in a full fight. 42 seconds is impressive in a UFC debut. He's got to get 15 minutes under his belt against the elite welterweights in the UFC before we can really take him seriously as, as a title contender, I think. And have we ever noticed Jason Miller to have really good striking skills? Because he's always been known more as a, as a ground guy, a, a submission-type specialist, never really a big striker. Maybe after this fight, Working with CR Badaherzada. There you go. I'm gonna say it a lot faster. It'll sound <laughs> it'll sound better that way. Uh, after watching this fight, does that convince him maybe to start start working on his punching more or his striking more, uh, leading up to his fight with CB Dalloway? Uh, yes. I mean, I think CB Dalloway is a guy you can hit. Jared Hammond hit CB Dalloway. A lot of guys have been able to hit CB Dalloway. CB Dalloway is scary part of his game is his submissions because he's got a great Peruvian necktie. He's got some decent takedowns, and I think Jason Mayhem Miller's a guy who can probably just box CB Dalloway into a decision win if he wants to, but I don't know that we've seen the kind of striking out of Mayhem that would suggest he's going to go out there and put on a Michael Bisping boxing clinic. So, I think you need, if you're going to have a training partner like Sierra Badrzada, you've got to be able to apply what you're training uh, and as far as uh, having this kind of a training partner, uh, I'm seeing Badrzada show off a lot of talent and a lot of power. We're not seeing it with guys he trains with. Nevertheless, he's moving up the welterweight ladder. Hopefully, Jason Mayhem Miller moves up the, the middleweight ladder. Brian Stan and Alessio Sakara. That was a fight that I think we both had circled. A lot of fight fans had had ready on their on their programs as just an out and out f- a war. These two were just going to punch each other silly. We saw Brian Stan lose to Chael Sonnen uh, and, and had his ground game, or complete lack thereof, it seemed, uh, shown off for the world. Brian Stan came out in the, in the first round and, and tried taking Sakara down and finally got him to the ground. And then just went after him with with haymakers. Well, I think you know they were trading shots earlier on in that fight. I think ultimately what happened is... The power of Brian Stan after dropping from light heavyweight where he was a WEC champion, uh, I think it's just too much for a lot of these guys. I mean, you're going to have your rare case of a guy like Chael Sonnen who's just going to come in and be able to bully anyone in the middleweight division. I don't think a whole lot of guys can do to Brian Stan what Chael was able to do. And I think Alessio Sakara is just a guy on the wrong end of of a boxing match with a guy who's got light heavyweight power. I mean, Alessio Sakara is one of the best boxers in mixed martial arts. He's got the reputation and the background as as a boxer with a legit boxing career to back that up. I'm not saying he's going to go win world titles in boxing, but he's got some of the best hands as far as hand speed goes. And, and I thought he looked impressive in some of the exchanges with Brian Stan in the early parts of that fight. However, once Stan clips guys... Uh, that power really hits the chin, and he was able to get Sakara on the ground through that ground and pound. Uh, so Sakara went out for a little bit. I thought it was a very odd slash bad stoppage. I I know that a lot of people are going to disagree with me on that. Nevertheless, Brian Stan moves up that middleweight ladder. Six and three in the USC now uh, should be an interesting future for him. And we do have the audio from that uh, from that stoppage. Let's play that for you. This is first fight here in 2012. Just in close, Oliver. not a lot of power Oliver. 
Yeah, he was. You saw when Brian Stanley clocked him with a couple of left hands right to the side of the head. One just absolutely turned out the lights on Alessio Sakara. The second one seemed to bring him back. I, I called it. He was a, a human surge protector, where you know the power goes out and then just boom pops right back on. And at that point, he woke up, realized, oh wait, I'm still on my back, being punched in the head. Went to cover up, and by that point, the ref had called it. It was done. Well. I- I don't necessarily agree with that on the premise that he's on his back already. I don't see it as any different than a flash knockdown. Uh, if a guy gets hit and the lights go out, he falls to a knee or he falls all the way down. The, the similarity is that there's a there's a time that lapses, seconds, a split second, whatever it is, where the guy goes out if he's going to fall all the way to the ground. It just so happens that Paulo Tiago uh, was out for extended periods of time. Michael Bisping at UFC 100 was out for extended periods of time. But generally, you get a guy who's standing upright, he gets hit on the chin, and he falls on his face, even if momentarily the lights have gone out. Otherwise, he would still be up. So how is that any different than Alessio Sakara, who's on his back, he can't fall anywhere. He gets hit in the chin, the lights momentarily go out, they come back on, he immediately goes to defend, and the fight's over. I'm not saying it's not a good stoppage for fighter safety reasons, I just don't see how it's any different than a flash knockdown, where a guy who's standing and throwing punches drops to a knee, or he drops all the way to the ground and has to take more punishment. If you're out, you're out. The difference is, Alessio Sakara had nowhere to go and was looking right up at the referee. But let's not pretend there's not similarities between guys going out and guys going out. The difference is, Alessio Sakara had a big, strong middleweight with punching power on top of him, and the ref could actually see his eyes roll back. I guarantee you, if you look at Frankie Edgar's fight with Gray Maynard, you look at some of these other fights... Check Congo against Pat Berry. You can't tell me that those guys weren't out momentarily. They were allowed to continue. And on that premise, I don't really see why the fight was stopped so soon. I don't have a problem if we're all going to talk about fighter safety and how Alessio Sakara could have eaten a lot more damage from Brian Stan, and he would have. And the fight probably would have been stopped in 10 to 15 seconds. That being said... I don't really agree with the stoppage today on the fight card because he did cover up quickly, and though he was out, everyone who gets knocked down is out at some point. Otherwise, they'd be standing straight up. Yeah, we'd have been looking at a situation of the uh, the Pat Curran-Joe Warren fight from about six weeks ago in Bellator where that fight should have been stopped at least 15 seconds faster than it was. Is this coming to a point now where we need to see more stringent refereeing where everybody has an exact line of things that they're looking at because you mentioned you mentioned the Frankie Edgar fight you mentioned the Pat Berry fight those were different referees than we had today I believe it was Mark Goodman uh was our referee might have been Mark Goddard Mark Goddard that's the one excuse me I I don't know where I get my name sometimes. Mark Goddard might have seen things differently than Herb Dean sees things, than Josh Rosenthal sees things, than Steve Mazzagatti sees things, but who doesn't on that one? Uh is this a, are we getting to a point again where we're going to start having conversations about refereeing in MMA? Well, I mean, it's going to it's going to constantly come up because like refereeing in any sport where it's balls and strikes that are being argued in baseball or charges and, you know, personal fouls called in basketball, there's a fine line between how you define, you know, human judgment and human error when it comes to these judgments and and you watch a fight like Joe Warren and Pat, you know, uh, Pat Curran, uh, and and you sit there and you go, he took too much damage. He was clearly out on the feet, and you know, 
it, it should have been stopped a lot sooner. And then you see a fight like today, and you go, okay, the ref stepped in, and, and maybe he stepped in at the right time, blah, blah, blah. My problem is that there's a huge discrepancy between these stoppages, and, and I don't know that that can be rectified. I mean, you have guys, Herb Dean's going to give guys opportunity to fight back. Maybe Mark Goddard doesn't feel like he needs to put fighters at risk. Uh, I can only speak to, I think you need to pay attention to a fighter's history. If you're a referee, I know that that's probably not part of what you're told to do as far as you know treat these guys fairly and equally, blah, blah, blah. You see a guy like, Houston Alexander get clipped numerous times and go out. I'm sorry. He doesn't have the same kind of leeway in these fights. If he gets clipped, you have to think about his safety. However, if you see a guy who's notoriously taking beatings, you've got to allow him the opportunity to fight back from some of this stuff because he's proven track record wise and on a resume. He's capable of taking it and coming back and weathering the storm today. You know, I, I mean, I don't think it was a great stoppage. But it was a much better stoppage situation than the Curran Warren fight, or or even let's go back to King Mo against Lorenz Larkin, where the female uh, referee allowed Lorenz Larkin to take fifteen uncontested shots to the head. Even Kim Winslow, referee Kim, of the year. Kim Winslow can't allow guys to take that kind of punishment. Fifteen unanswered shots, okay, is a lot worse than one shot that puts a guy out momentarily because it's fifteen times the amount of damage. Well I'm looking at Alessio Sakara's history here. He's lost four times by knockout. The last time that he was knocked out was by Chris Lieben on in March of two thousand eight. So it's been four years, literally four years since this guy's been knocked out. Yeah, he probably could have eaten a little more punishment, but you're right, for the for the sake of safe for safety's sake uh, it was probably the the better idea. Discretion is the better part of valor in in stopping that fight, and and he moves on to to who knows what's going to come next for Alessio Sakara and for Brian Stan, who who goes back to trying to walk step back up that ladder uh, in that division. Our main event on fuel was Alexander Gustafson and Tiago Silva, a guy that that Kenny Florian said on the broadcast multiple times absolutely scared him. Gustafsson had obviously the hometown crowd in Sweden behind him. Uh, clipped Silva early with a good uppercut. After that, the it was a it was a good back and forth type of fight. Uh, 30-27, 29-28. Gustafsson, your winner by unanimous decision. Was that the kind of fight that really you know elevates Alexander Gustafsson up the rankings? Do you want a long answer or a short answer? If you want, if you want the if you want the long answer, no. I can give you I can give you an answer that might contradict you. Okay, go for it. Let's hear it. Dan Henderson's waiting in the wings. We're gonna get through Atlanta next week. Rashad versus Jones. We're gonna get through that. Dan Henderson's gonna go and we'll see who's next. And I think in the meanwhile, Gustafson's gonna have time to have a fight. Exactly. I'd like to see it kind of shuffled around a little bit and give Gustafson a shot because you look at the top eight, a lot of them have fought for a title and if you give Gustafson a chance, maybe he can he can ruffle a little feathers. So you're saying no tune-up. You'd like to see him against John or Rashad. I'd like to see him. I'd like to right see him. He's bat. he's young and he's got a, he can he can fight, man. He can he can do it. That was that was Mark Munoz on the UFC on Fuel post-fight show. Chael Sonnen, you know, mentioning that Dan Henderson is next in line in the light heavyweight division after Rashad uh, Rashad Evans and John Jones next week, but. Mark Munoz declaring that Alexander Gustafson deserves a title shot because the other eight guys ahead of him, they had a, a top 10 ranking and he was ninth. 
He deserves a shot because the other eight guys have already fought for a title. Here's I, I have numerous holes, machine gun style. I want to shoot through that. Uh, first things first, as you like to say, <laughs> Alexander Gustafson's not a top ten light heavyweight, and and I'm sorry if anybody thinks that they're not paying attention to who's been winning fights and who's been losing fights. Secondly, Tiago Silva is a good fighter, I guess, uh, maybe in a way. But he's coming off of his first fight since a year-long suspension. He actually hasn't fought in, let's say, 15 months before this. And his last fight was a no contest against Brandon Vera. A fight that was turned into a no contest because he was suspended for for steroid use. After he mashed Brandon Vera's nose in. Right. That was fun. Before that fight, he lost to Rashad Evans. So this guy hasn't won since 2009. We're just talking about Tiago Silva here. Tiago Silva's last victory was against Keith Jardine. Woo! His major, his three biggest victories of his career, Keith Jardine, Houston Alexander, and James Irvin. Three guys with no chin. Okay. He knocked all three of them out. Surprise, surprise. He's lost to Lyoto Machida, Rashad Evans, and Alexander Gustafson in his career. Those are his three losses. Tiago Silva's not a guy that you use as a stepping stone towards a title shot. He's not even a guy you use as a stepping stone towards a top five opponent, especially with his recent resume and how it looks with loss, no contest loss. I I just, I think it's egregious for someone of Mark Munoz's intelligence to suggest that a win over Tiago Silva makes anybody uh, worthy of a title shot. And, you know, I don't have a problem with Alexander Gustafson. He, He draws comparisons to John Jones. Maybe some of those comparisons make sense as far as age, height, weight, uh, and all that cute stuff is concerned. But he doesn't have a ton of great wins. I mean, Tiago Silva, Vladimir Matyushenko, Matt Hamill, James Tehuna is a good win as we see James Tehuna move up the light heavyweight ladder. Serial Dita Body, you know, he's also putting away guys like Jared Hamill, but he, he drops a, dis, uh, a, a submission, excuse me, to Phil Davis. Not a guy who can get past Phil Davis. Phil Davis challenged Rashad Evans. this is all too premature. I mean, the kid's 25. He looks like he could put on 20 pounds of muscle and compete at heavyweight in the next couple years. Let's give him time before we start ushering him in as a contender ahead of Dan Henderson. I mean, Dan Henderson beat Fedor Emelianenko. Dan Henderson has knocked out Fajal, or excuse me, Rafael Cavalcante. He's beaten the best guys uh, at light heavyweight, at middleweight, and he, he beat the best heavyweight of all time. Alexander Gustafson doesn't leapfrog a guy like that because he beat Tiago Silva. I, I I like Mark Munoz, but that makes no sense. And one last thing on Gustafson. We're talking here about whether he wants whether he deserves a top five guy or or whether where this vaults him in the in the light heavyweight rankings. He says he wants a top five guy. I mean, why not give him one? And if so, who's he who's he gonna get? Uh I would consider Lyoto Machida. If that's something he'd be interested in. Otherwise, I think the appropriate fight for him is the guy who unfortunately could not take the fight due to injury. And that's uh, that's a little nog. I, I think that's an appropriate fight for him. It's a good gauge of where his striking acumen is. You know, Tiago Silva uh, has put away a lot of solid strikers with no chin. And he was able to use that power. But he doesn't have... I don't necessarily think of Tiago Silva as having a great striking game so much as he has some power in his hands. Uh, Little Nog's a little bit different. I think Little Nog poses some problems on the feet. Uh, I think he's got a decent enough game on the ground that Gustafson will want to stay away. And it's an interesting style clash. I, I think that Gustafson 
is going to be able to out, you know, work and be more athletic than a lot of the guys in the division that he'll face. So I think Machida is a guy who, if he wants to kind of get in there and take on a big name opponent, I think Machida's apropos. I just don't think he deserves someone bigger than that. Why not Phil Davis? They last fought two years ago. Uh, UFC 112, Phil Davis is coming off the loss to Rashad Evans, his first professional loss. On paper, this looks like this would look like one heck of a matchup of two young, up-and-coming guys, uh, and it's a rematch which the UFC loves. Fans tend to love it, especially after the amount of time that they've been away from each other. Uh, why not Why not Gustafson Davis, too, uh, if, if they can't cobble together Machida or Little Nog? Well, I don't know. I mean, Davis put away uh, Gustafson pretty, you know, easily, I thought, in that fight. You know, and Anaconda chokes in the first round, no less, is not something that you you forget. And, and I, Phil Davis is is probably not where Alexander Gustafson has evolved to. I mean, I think if we're talking about contenders, I think Phil Davis has kind of fallen off that perch a little bit. Here's, here's my take on, on all of this stuff coming out on Alexander Gustafson and what he wants and where he sits. This is really the UFC pushing somebody in our face as fans, as a challenger not named Rashad Evans or Dan Henderson, because after those two fights for John Jones, if John Jones has those fights, there's nobody left. I mean, there's just nobody left for John for, for John Jones to face. He's beaten Rampage. He's beaten Shogun. He's not going to have to fight Machida ever again because he just took down Machida. Forrest Griffin's not a guy who's going to climb his way back all the way to the top unless a guy comes out of nowhere and really, really, you know, even maybe out of strike for. I, I don't Luke know. Rockhold. Luke Rockhold could be a guy that wants to put on 20 pounds and do it, but he's fighting at middleweight right now. Who is there? I mean, who who is there to face John Jones? Alexander Gustafson's only 14 and 1. He's 25. This has become a big deal because there's a depleted division that doesn't have any challengers. You want to talk about, you know, uh, you know, Mark Munoz says, let's leapfrog him over nine guys who've had a shot. He's not completely inaccurate that a lot of the other guys ahead of Gustafson have lost. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean Gustafson has earned the title shot. He's not Dan Hardy. This isn't welterweight. You don't just move ahead from the number 14 ranking to number two because people enjoyed watching you beat up Tiago Silva in Sweden. I mean, that's that's not how the UFC should work. Uh, I think he deserves Machida, maybe a little Nog. Aside from that, you know, man, get back in line. Fight the guys they tell you to fight, whether that's Forrest, whether that's anybody you have to, because Tiago Silva is not a win that gets you title shots. So there's your UFC on Fuel 2 card. Uh, your fight of the night bonus, Brad Pickett and Demacio Page. Your submission of the night bonus, John McGuire, uh, for that armbar against Demarcus Johnson. And your knockout of the night, C.R. Badaherzada over uh, Paulo Tiago with that 42-second 40, bomb that he dropped on him. Last night, Bellator 65. We saw the, the bantamweight tournament begin. Marcus Galvao over Ed West by a unanimous decision. And Luis Noguera over Alexis Villa by unanimous decision. Alexis Villa is 41 years old. How much more does he have in the tank? I don't know, uh, but whatever is left should not be spent competing in 135 pounds. I thought that was evident. Uh, Luis Noguera, you know, he's a good size 135-er. Uh, and he was able to bully Alexis Villa a little bit. I, 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 it was an interesting fight. I, I saw why the judges gave it to to, to Noguera 29-28 across the board. And, and because of that, it's a disappointing you know, showing for for the former Olympian. 
Um, I, I don't know at his age with his gas tank if he's going to be able to make waves at 135. Either Bellator needs to add a flyweight division or Alexis Vila needs to get himself into the UFC uh, and, and compete against guys his own size because I don't think he's outmatched talent-wise. He just doesn't seem to be able to bully anybody at 135. He drops his second fight in a row. Speaking of guys at 135, we had our bantamweight championship fight between Eduardo Dantas and Zach Makovsky, and Eduardo Dantas just kind of pulled off a little something in what we were looking at was apparently close to Makovsky's hometown in uh, in New Jersey. Now going for the head and arm choke. And there you have Eduardo Dudu Dantes is your new Bellator bantamweight champion. What kind of a chance would someone like Alexis Villa have against him? Uh, I, I don't know. I think he's, style-wise, I think Alexis Villa is going to have a problem with a guy who's as long and lanky as Eduardo Dantes. Uh, Dantes is a guy who, to me, uh, for 135ers, is, is easily just snuck himself into the top 10. I say that for a couple of reasons. One, I think his height and his length poses a lot of problems for dudes. He doesn't have great striking, but he threw some body kicks. I don't know if you saw them against Zach Makovsky. Oh, yeah. They would make a lot of dudes that size crumble. And Zach Makovsky didn't look like he enjoyed taking them. Those kind of kicks from a guy like Dantes are, are, are really, really solid, even if the hands aren't necessarily developed. He's a 23-year-old kid. I think there's a lot of room for him to grow on the ground. Uh, you know, I don't know how many guys at 135 can beat him. I'll be honest. I, I think he's a legit threat to anybody in the UFC's bantamweight division. You know, give give him two years uh, as far as facing top-level competition in Bellator. I think he's a guy you could put in there against Uriah Faber or Dominic Cruz and expect positive results from, if not wins, because, you know, he's an up-and-comer. He's 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 got great submissions. He's a, he's a fast kid long limbs, and, and I, I expected him to pull off that victory. I did not expect him to look that impressive. And then we had the featherweight tournament semifinal. Daniel Strauss and Mike Corey, another unanimous decision win, but Daniel Strauss just kind of waltzed over Corey, and he's moving on to take on Marlon Sandro. Daniel Strauss is a guy, I've said it a couple times, uh, and when I said it, I was a little bit nervous about it because it's one of those predictions that y- you really can't, know too much about it's everything that happens in Bellator needs to be taken with a grain of salt when you're comparing stuff to the UFC however I believe Daniel Strauss is a guy that you know 12 to 15 months from now can compete with the best featherweights in the UFC I'm talking Jose Aldo and and what's interesting about that to me he's going to have an opportunity to face a Jose Aldo teammate in the final of the season six featherweight tournament in Bellator in Marlon Sandro and I, I that's a really interesting fight for me I, I think it's a fight you're geeked about. I know it's a fight I'm excited for. Daniel Strauss has got really, really good striking. Good left hook, good jab. He's got a nice right hand, he, and he's strong. And so I, I think he matches up with Marlon Sandro really well. And I think if he gets to buy a teammate of Jose Aldo, who's, you know, 
to me, they're very similar in a lot of ways and very dissimilar in ways. But if Strauss can pass this test and clear this hurdle, you know, he's going to get his shot at the, at the Bellator featherweight champion. And while that is something on its own, if I'm projecting Daniel Strauss right now into the UFC, I think he's close to a top 10 featherweight status, if not already in. Uh, it just looked absolutely dominant and impressive against Mike Corey at Bellator 65. There's a reason we're not telling you about the heavyweight championship fight between Eric Prindle and Cole Conrad. Uh, Eric Prindle, just, trouble just follows him wherever he goes anymore. Uh, not legal trouble, not anything like that. He's snake-bitten right now. Uh, with all the mess that he had uh, just getting his title shot, and now... He hurts his hand, I believe it was, and and he's they had to postpone his fight with Cole Conrad for another month. So we're going to do that at Bellator seventy. Was there anything on the you know on our, on our prelim cards that we had? Because we had a couple really good prelim cards as well between these two these two cards this weekend. Anything that really stood out to you? Um, yes. I mean, obviously you got guys from France making waves in the UFC. Surreal Diabati comes back. Uh, in a fight that he was taking down in the first round, I think most people thought that's just it because he doesn't have a great ground game. He's a six foot six light heavyweight who's, in my opinion, I don't know how many people will agree with this, but my personal opinion, he's one of the five best strikers in the UFC. Pound for pound, he's got a great kickboxing kickboxing background. Excuse me, and he's just he just lights guys up on the feet. He lit up Tom DeBlas on the feet tonight. Was taken down, fought his way back, took a close decision. Francis Carmont is a guy who, I think if you've got a guy at middleweight who has a chance to, to compete and, and have the Anderson Silva titles attached to him in the next couple of years, I think it's this kid. He's just athletic as all hell. I'm really excited about his, his career arc and his future progression. Other guys on the card that I thought were impressive, Reza Madati looked great, locking up a guillotine choke, and, and, and Simeon Thorison's an interesting guy. He's a six foot three welterweight with a 79-inch reach, and he was able to put together a rear naked choke submission, lock up a win against Bessem Youssef in the second round. I thought he was losing the fight until he was able to get that submission. I believe he moves to 17-2 and two in his career. An interesting, unique fighter in the welterweight division, which is fast becoming the deepest division in mixed martial arts. A lot of fun undercard fights this weekend. And we also had over in Bellator, uh, UFC alumnus Chris McRae, you know, the savage, as they called him on his season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, he comes out with a win over Elton Barboza, a split decision win. And then a guy in a welterweight tournament qualifier that we've been talking about recently, Lyman Good, just absolutely nukes LeVon Maynard with a first-round knockout. Good, the former Bellator welterweight world champion. He's in the black trunks. LeVon Maynard in the red trunks. Kevin Mulhall, the referee, round number one. It's Whoa! This might be over quickly, Sean. Very fast start by Lyman Good. Looking for the ground attack. Finish it. He gets it. Just like that, a lightning strike win for the former champion of 170 pounds. Man! Yeah, it was, it was 13 seconds. That's all it took. And that shouldn't come as a shock to anybody. Lyman Good is a former champion in Bellator. A guy that can compete with any uh, welterweight they put in that tournament, and just a just a lights out solid performance. Probably the best individual performance all weekend. That's Marcus Schmidley from MMAInterviews.tv. I'm Kevin Mendelson. That's round one. We are the MMA Cutmen. When we come back, we're going to have your headlines of the week. Anything you may have missed in MMA. 
Still kind of a slow week, even though we did have a fight week. There is stuff outside the cage to tell you about, and we'll do that next um, with the MMA Cutmen.